This is a classic because this is the ultimate family drama set within a labor play among firecracker issues of environmentalism, energy politics, race relations, feminism, and geopolitical intrigue. Oh boy. This is a classic because this play will spark conversation for sure. For sure! (laughs) This is a history. This is a legacy. Hello, and welcome to This is a Classic, the Expand the Canon Theater Podcast. We're your hosts, Mary Candler, founder of Hedgepig Ensemble Theater. And me, Shannon Corinthian, Director of Production for Hedgepig. Expand the Canon is a program of Hedgepig Ensemble, a Brooklyn-based company that reimagines the classics, creating a legacy of storytelling with gender equity at its core. Content warning, we will be discussing murder during this episode. Today, we are digging into Shirley Graham Du Bois's Dust to Earth from the Expand the Canon list available at expandthecanon.com. If you were to go to that page, and you you should, should. (laughs) what is our pitch for this play, Mary? If you're looking for a live wire take on fossil fuel and the American labor system, consider this incendiary drama exploring the intersection of racism, capitalism, and environmentalism. Set against the backdrop of a rural coal mine, a young black man struggles to confront his heritage when his white father arrives to survey the mine his white daughter is set to inherit. A tack-sharp look at systemic violence and ultimately a plea towards empathy. It is a perfect drama for the Miller or O'Neill slot in your season. Yes, and what a play it is. But before we dive in, it's important to note that Shirley Graham Du Bois wrote many versions of this play. We will be discussing the 1940 Dust to Earth, which was produced at Yale University. The other version of this play you might be interested in looking into is Coal Dust, written in 1938, which has a similar plot to Dust to Earth, but is a clear revisioning or retelling of this story. We believe Coal Dust is an important play, but we choose to focus on Graham Du Bois's Dust to Earth for the 2022 list. And I have so much to say about Coal Dust later, but we will get there. (laughs) That we will. This play, Dust to Earth, starts rather intensely with an explosion in a mine in an undetermined southern city. It is through this incident that we meet a large part of the cast, most notably Brick, who is a light-skinned black man who is one of the most hardworking miners, but who also seems to hold the weight of the world on his shoulders. We learn very quickly that Brick is also well-liked by the miners, supported even more so by the fact that he rescues one of his colleagues by courageously going into the mine that just exploded. There is so much going on here at the beginning, and I just, I think anytime you start a play with this, like, explosion in a mine, you create almost this Chekhov's gun situation Mm -hmm. where you're like, oh, we're on the brink of something all the time and we're just waiting for this to unfold again. And note to producers, you do not need to see the mine or see the explosion at this time. (laughs) No, you do not. The other thing I wanted to just mention, because Shannon, you describe Brick as a light-skinned black man, is specifically a light-skinned black man with a hint of red in his hair because that comes 
back to be pretty important moving forward. <laughs> that it does. The dust in this play barely has time to settle when we learn that Brick's father, who is unaware Brick even existed, is the white owner of the mine, and that this man will be arriving at the mine with his white daughter very soon. Wow. The plot thickens through various intrigues with different members of this large cast, but the true standout moments are as follows. The mine owner's daughter, Leslie Clayton, is meant to take over ownership of the mine and has been venturing inside and getting to know the workers. That's really interesting that a woman is going to take over the mine, by the way. I know. Especially, yeah, especially at the time that this was written. I don't think that this was very common, Mm -hmm. which, you know, speaks to Anthony Clayton, the owner of the mine, being like, this is my only child. And focusing on that versus the fact that she's a woman. Yeah, love Important note. Yeah. On that note, Brick, (laughs) who has been dealing with a lot of inner turmoil since the arrival of his father, Anthony Clayton, decides to confront the man in his office with the goal to kill him. The news that Clayton has fathered an illegitimate black son seemingly comes as a shock to him, and in his stupor, he forbids his daughter to interact at all with Brick. It's important to note that at this point, only a few people know Brick's true identity, um, and we aren't sure who he's going to tell about this relationship with Anthony Clayton. Um, Brick doesn't kill Clayton, and it seems like he just might want closure or some recognition of some kind after confronting his father. It really sets up Brick as this almost Hamlet-like character, where he's got this turmoil on his soul of being... Um, an illegitimate son of a wealthy owner. Um, He neither lives in the world of white folks or black folks and is like, really doesn't have a place of belonging except for this mine, this place that Mm -hmm. actually physically blackens his skin and hides kind of the trauma of his past. And the fact that he spends so much time saying, I'm going to kill this man, I'm going to kill this man, and he's treated me poorly. And yet when the moment comes, he's indecisive really kind of brings in this like little Hamlet feel, little Hamlet trope in there. Yeah, for sure. And I think a reason why he might not have killed him is because Clayton clearly didn't know, right? This came as a shock to Clayton. And we know that at the time, white men fathered a lot of, you know, black sons and children or, or black families. And usually they know. But I think the fact that Clayton didn't know really stood out to Brick and was like, okay, maybe this isn't what I thought this was. Which then leads him to leave. But there's also a moment where Clayton is like, it recognizes Brick's hard work, which I think is also important. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Brick's plan is to go home, pack, and put the mine in his rearview mirror. But the powers that be are not going to let him rest because in comes Mabel. She's a poor white woman who's been working with German spies, which is an important <laughs> side plot that we won't be going into right now. Um, so read the play. To undermine Brick and sow discord within the mine. She corners Brick in his home at night and tells him she knows about his identity. Um, An important disclosure before we talk about the next part is that Maybelle has not been the nicest person throughout this play. She's very much been an antagonist. Some would say she's the foil to Leslie Clayton, who has been kind and understanding and trying to get to know the mine. Maybelle has been in the mine for a while and nobody really likes her. And I think it's worth noting that um, the reason that Maybelle knows this backstory of Brick is that she's from the same small town. So Brick grew up um, outside of the kind of Clayton plantation and Maybell did as well. Brick in his emotional stupor, you know, he's just been through a lot. Um, his stupor, his rage or overwhelm retaliates and kills Maybell. This is a hard moment in the play. I'm not going to lie. 
yeah, it's it it doesn't come out of nowhere, but it's definitely a very strong visual moment because Graham also doesn't pull punches really. Like she she makes it clear what happens. Um, we don't see it on stage. Um, for any producers listening to this, we don't see it on stage, but it's it's pretty clear what happens. Mm-hmm. The next morning brings no better news as we learn that another section of the mine has exploded and Leslie Clayton, Brick's half-sister, was inside trying to see the state of the affairs for herself. Again, Brick heroically goes down into the mine to save Leslie with a lot of internal conflict. The following scene is tense as Brick places an unconscious Leslie in the elevator shaft to be pulled up, but has to remain below until the rope can come back down and take him out of the mine. Leslie gets pulled out of the elevator shaft and Brick smells a nauseous gas that starts to affect him, but realizes that there's a lot of gas left in the mine. He hears Anthony Clayton, his father, say he's coming down to save his son, to save Brick, and the miner, in a last-ditch effort to save everyone else as well at the top of his father, finds a match in his pocket and lights it, igniting the gas, filling the crumbling mine, and killing himself in the process. The ultimate sacrifice. And we'll obviously, we're going to chat more about this and like how we get here. But wow, a total sacrifice to make sure that no one else gets hurt. It, and it's, you know, it comes after so many big moments and it, it just truly never ends. It's one of these plays that you're always, always on edge. There's no right or wrong. You're just kind of there in the muck with them, right? You're in the dust. Yeah. It's quite a moving and tumultuous ending for a tumultuous play. Throughout this main um, plot, there's unrequited love, there's German spies, uh, there's a power struggle for leadership within the mine, and you also get to see the inner workings and lives of the miners and their families. And I also want to mention, like, I think one of the main plot points throughout here is a labor dispute. Of this is ultimately a political play about the cooperation of workers, regardless of race or ethnicity. And we're always towing the line of are we striking or are we going to work? And even though this is ultimately a family drama, it is set so deeply within this geopolitical world, within this mm-hmm. labor dispute world, within this world of lots of really messy, powerful directives, I suppose. It's, I think that's the beauty of this play is that Graham puts it in the context of American history, of like you said, the labor struggle the race divide, and not just black and white. There's also Irish conflict as well. There's the backdrop of World War II, colorism. Yes. This is kind of a history play in a way for for Graham. Yeah, it is a really, it is, it is an interesting look at American history. And it is a bit of American history that we don't see very often because the narrative around coal mining is a mm-hmm. narrative around white people and the Appalachian mm-hmm. coal miners. And that is, I think, where most people associate um, kind of the coal mining story. And to see this through an interracial lens, to see this mm-hmm. specifically through a mixed-race black man's um, struggle and his his role in kind of the energy economy is just a different look at coal mining. Yeah. But the coal in this play, the coal dust functions as a race eraser. It's an equalizer of sorts. But that's why it's a perfect backdrop for this play because everybody else, the workers in the mine seem very united by the fact that they're just covered in dust the whole time, right? They're coal miners. They all look the same at the end of the day. And I think that's a really smart backdrop to put this kind of, to contextualize this history 
And as we get more into Graham's bio, like, this is her thing, too, right? Um, right. Equalization right. of workers, creating a place for political cooperation. She is extremely left along with her husband. And this is, like, a major call to call to action here, this idea of universal brotherhood. And I just think that setting a play in a coal mine that truly turns everyone the same color is mm-hmm. so smart and brilliant to have that conversation. Um, one of the older Irishmen in the play, Pat, even has this quote, if lights be out, all cats be gray. After a while, mm-hmm. we forget. And I love that it is ultimately a breeding ground for political cooperation across racial lines. And also, it's not just the political side of things. It also ties back to this familial story for Brick, who has never belonged anywhere because mm-hmm. he didn't belong in either world of black folks or white folks. The mine hides him. He is, it becomes his refuge. He's no longer just a symbol of racial sexual trauma. He is no longer just an illegitimate son. He's no longer lost between worlds, but he is part of creating power because ultimately, like, coal is energy and power. I think that's also why his response to Clayton being there is so strong. It's also said that Brick is kind of a stoic character, doesn't really emote well, but he's a great worker, people like him, um, and miners listen to him. And I think that's why his agitation at this man coming into is so strong, why people are so put off or stressed out by the fact that Brick is responding is because he's so stoic. Like you said, he found his power in this mine that this person coming in and troubling that, it, it just kind of starts something. It's the catalyst for for Brick to really kind of lose it um, and become very Hamlet-like in his behavior. I would like to talk about the, the Maybell murder because it's a depiction of a white woman being murdered by a black man on stage in a country that is very anti-black. I remember when we were talking about it, it came as not a shock, but it was something that we we didn't know quite what to do with in terms of our, our response to it. And I think it's important to note that Maybell represents, you know, the the oppression that white women generally did to black men and black people at the time. Um, But at the same time, Graham introduces Leslie Clayton, who is a kind, patient, um, and intelligent woman who also doesn't treat the other workers of the mine of any color in any different ways, right? I think that's a really important part of this play is the fact that we have Leslie Clayton who comes in kind of not understanding the world that she's about to enter, but willing to take that time and understand it versus Maybell, who's been in it and um, who uses kind of the, the, the racism, all of the isms to get her way because of her hard past. She's a poor woman who lives in a coal mining village. She, is not, she does not live a happy life, but yet she also uses that and uses all of the, the problems to kind of get ahead. And so it's a very interesting part of this play because you also have Brick, who is this character that we don't know if we like. We, you know, sympathize with him. We understand his struggle. And then when there's a potential redemption, he kills a person. I think it's also really interesting to look at how relevant this parallel that they're drawing between Brick and Maybell is. The fact that they both mm-hmm. grew up in the same town, yeah. that Brick lived with, you know, the black folks in town. 
Maybell lived in a poor white part of town, and Maybell delivers racism towards Brick. And also, Maybell was treated as poor white scum by the Claytons. So it's like this continuation of mm-hmm. hatred, right? She would say that the Claytons would like throw mud at them and that they were really nasty to the poor white folks. And it's so relevant today when we think about yeah. the political situations of poor white folks and poor black folks and mm-hmm. how Shirley Graham really wanted to see more um, coming together and fighting for the same rights, right. even right. though they are staunchly pitted against each other here. Just very hauntingly relevant. Yeah, because at the time, Shirley is also, I mean, historically, Shirley has seen the First World War the rise of fascism, the rise of communism in the world, and just as affected by the fact that she's a Black woman, by racism. So that she really incorporates all of this into this play to make it a very gray, coal dust-covered yes. play. Transparently, when I read this play for the first time, Dust to Earth, I thought, this is pretty messy. You've got this like one family drama amid, as you've noticed, 800 other plots and they're all right. swirling around. And the structure of the play isn't a traditional just like rise and fall of action, right? It is right. really complex. And sometimes things like German spies, which seem like they should be this like big central thing, are kind of like these little like side plots that's fascinating. But the more I got to know this play... And think that I begin to understand some of Shirley Graham's intentions, I think the messiness might be on purpose. And I say that because it's more real, because it is like the reality of the situation is that all of these forces are swirling at the same time. And Mm -hmm. when you look at the evolution of the play, which I do want to talk more about later, she kind of readapts a former work. She wrote the play called Coal Dust, which is a lot tidier. It is a play that I don't think is quite as interesting, but Mm -hmm. is structurally pretty sound and a little bit more sensical, less like loose ends, less swirling of forces. And I think there's a reason that she went from structure and all of that to a messier version. I think it's deeply intentional. So if you start getting lost in this world of German spies and strikes and environmentalism and gas in the water and feminism and all of this stuff, right, I think you're supposed to. And that's why we think this is a classic, right? It is a classic because there is so much to unpack. It is, I think, an endless play for exploration. And it's a great way to engage your community and your audience and to really ask questions that you might not have asked before in your theater space. Yes, I think that a production consideration is you need a badass dramaturg because there's so much in here that could use contextualizing for anyone working on it. And also, I think it could be easy to be scared of the variety of settings and the fact that the last scene is in a mine. But I also think this could be a really cool opportunity for some devised movement and theater work, you know, get some actors using their bodies, making sounds. I don't think it has to be a Broadway scale to make it effective. I agree. I agree. I think there's a lot of room to just interpret this. History. 
So, Shannon, I mean, we've (laughs) dug into so many different elements of this play, and I think so many of them ultimately relate to Shirley Graham and her life story. So can you tell us a little bit about who Shirley Graham is? Yeah, I can. Our audience might have been hearing us say her name and, and noting that it sounds somewhat familiar. That's because Shirley Graham Du Bois was married to W.E.B. Du Bois. Both were very important figures in the early civil rights movement and were militant for equality, equity, and of all gender, races, and more. Yes, and you'll notice I think a lot of times we call her Shirley Graham in this podcast because she Mm -hmm. wrote this play before she was married. So it's like, well, she was Shirley Graham when she wrote Dust to Earth. (laughs) Right, right, right. Um, She's also married twice, but we'll talk about that. Did not know. Um, Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shirley Graham's life is equally as fascinating as this play. Born at the end of the 19th century in Indianapolis, Graham's curiosity quickly takes her out into the world. She studies in Paris at the Sorbonne. For context, the Sorbonne is akin to Harvard, and it's where um, great literary scholars went to train and doctors. It's a, it's a wonderful school. Is this common for a black woman from America to be able to do this? No, this is very uncommon, especially at the this she went to Paris in um, the 1920s. Wow. So kind of a time of turmoil in Europe, and she chooses to go to the Sorbonne, um, which is a big deal. Incredible. There, she meets two sisters from Martinique, which is a sister island of Guadeloupe, where I am from. Um, A little historical context. Martinique, (laughs) Guadeloupe, and a lot of French West Indies islands um, were islands that belonged to France. They still do. They're now considered territories. But um, that is part of France's colonial past. So she meets these two women, and they introduce Graham to their intellectual circle composed of Black scholars from the time. So imagine the literary lounges that we learn about in English class. She then goes back to the U.S. after being in Paris for a while. She goes back to the U.S. in the 1930s in Ohio, where she pursues her studies in music theory. She's really quite an accomplished musician, and I've read that it's actually the reason that she's a more successfully produced playwright is honestly because of her in through music. She's like made such a name for herself in this world. Yes, she really worked hard um, and composed a few things, most notably at Oberlin College. She writes Tom Tom, an epic of music and the Negro, which we have also read for ETC and recommend you take a look at, but you should look at it with a strong dramaturgical lens and um, it shouldn't be produced without intentional support and awareness. Just a little caveat about Tom I will tell you, I just went to, because I live in D.C. now, and I went to the Smithsonian's African American Museum here. And in the music room, they have a section on opera. And there was a huge thing on Tom Tom. Amazing. I Amazing. Know. Well, I mean, it makes sense because I learned this um, while researching Tom Tom a little bit, that the opera attracted 10,000 people to its premiere at the Cleveland Stadium, and 15,000 people to the second performance. Incredible. I mean, this is a huge success story for Shirley Graham at this time. Yes. After receiving her BA from Oberlin College, Graham goes to the Yale School of Drama. Yes, and it's kind of interesting. I'm going to pop in right here because we're kind of coming up on the time that she starts working on a all-black cast adaptation of The Hairy Ape. This is, I think... Mm -hmm kind of in the mid-30s, 
And I yep. mention this because this is kind of has an evolution to where we're going in Death to Earth, is that originally she saw the hairy ape and she was like, hmm, interesting. It'd be really interesting to see kind of this through the lens of the black experience. And so she creates this adaptation and she it's on its way to production. It's going to open. And she <laughs> gets a telegram from O'Neill that is pretty heinous. It's a cease and desist telegram uh, that uses some pretty strong language, some of which includes words like, this is stupid and ridiculous freak theater. And she's forced to abandon that project. It's a project she's really interested in. It's all about, you know, coal and power and all of this, all these things that we start seeing in coal dust and in dust to earth. Um, So she abandoned that project, but she kind of took those ideas and went back to an earlier work. She had originally written a one-act play called Coal Dust. There is no version of that play available, so I don't know what is in that. But she took that one act and kind of combined it with this adaptation of an all-black cast hairy ape and creates the three-act play Coal Dust, which we do recommend you look at if you are interested in Dust to Earth as well. Just a side note, really interesting that this all came from a crazy response of O'Neill to right. Graham. Right, which adds to the context. And also, I mean, you were talking about the dates. You know, she starts this adaptation of The Hairy Ape during the Great Depression and produces the three-act play, Coal Dust, right before the beginning of World War II. And then revises Dust to Earth in the 1940s once the war has really taken off. So I think it's really important to also note the timing of that on top of this literary fight that she has with O'Neill, that this is also in the back, which we talked about a little bit, but this is also happening as the backdrop historically. So much, so much. So what else is going on in Shirley's life here? So from then on, Graham launches herself into activism, working with many organizations for the liberation of Blacks and women in America. This and the fact that she belonged to the Communist Party obviously wasn't accepted at the time, and she received intense pushback from lawmakers and xenophobic groups. I think this is so interesting because, you know, there is some speculation out there that she was on track to be like the most produced black woman at the time, and Mm -hmm. yet she believes so strongly in her convictions that she wouldn't compromise. And therefore, a lot of stuff ended up being taken away from her or kind of subverted. So it was her very passion and political force that she really believed in that actually did derail her playwriting career in a way. And I think that's also present in Dust to Earth. She doesn't hide from anything in that play. There's no... Which is why we should resurrect these plays. Like, she was subverted for her views, really specifically. She had great plays. She was on track to be on Broadway. Let us look at these plays again. Exactly. There was a reason why they were going to be on Broadway. So let's let's make that happen. Some of the work that she did that was stifled was her work with the Federal Theater Project, a theater program established during the Great Depression to help fund live entertainment in the U.S. That was shut down in 1939 by anti-communist and Nazi-sympathizing rhetoric. It's important to note that there is one woman who was kind of 
a staunch antagonist of Graham's work. Um, repeatedly, she just kind of put a pin in anything that Graham wanted to do. And she was deeply, this woman was deeply entrenched in anti-communist, anti-Semitic, fascist movements and, you know, supported a lot of problematic lawmakers. Additionally, her work with the YWCA in Indianapolis, where she supported anti-lynching laws and tried to get them moved forward. Anti-communist and white supremacist group, also supported by that white woman, launched a campaign against the YWCA, claiming that it was just a communist front organization controlled by Jews, Mm -hmm. which is just an addition to all of the isms (laughs) that are affecting Mm -hmm. this, that are present here. This rhetoric and attack on Shirley Graham led to her work being pulled from libraries and censored. So it wasn't, I mean, you know, her work was already receiving a lot of backlash from these groups, but it wasn't until then, pretty much around the same time that she was writing Dust to Earth, that her work was being pulled by libraries and censored. Is this McCarthyism time? Is this like the blacklist? Uh, Yes. No, no, no. That came afterwards. It's like 1950 to 1950. Yeah, 1950s. This was, she probably led that movement too. And <laughs> ramp up, <laughs> ramp up into McCarthyism. Here we come. Exactly, exactly. So in 1951, Graham marries W.E. Du Bois. Um, she was in her, side note, she was in her 50s and he was in his 80s. Huh. 84, to be correct. But age is but a number when you both have strong convictions and you're in love. That's so interesting, Shannon, because like, I think because she is, Shirley Graham Du Bois, and that name is so overshadowing in a way that I assume she was like so closely, you know, intertwined with Du Bois for her entire life. No. So she's married before, gets divorced, and has a child from that first marriage, then marries W.E.B. Du Bois later in life. And he also has a child from a previous marriage. But yeah, it's interesting, right? Like they both had full activist lives previously to getting married. I think Mm -hmm. that's says something about history that we deeply associate her with and her work with W.E.B. Mm-hmm, du Bois. Mm-hmm. I, I would venture even to say that some people believe that that's how she got her fame and blah, 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 right. when clearly she was prolific and had a lot of agency even before. And that's probably why they ended up together. I love that. So they get married and then the two quickly moved to Ghana, where they became citizens in 1961. In Ghana, both continue their activism in support of Black agency and equality. They get invited to a lot of big name meetings, so like the UN, and they talk to really important people. Um, they become friends with the Ghanaian leadership of the time. So they become very important historical figures in Ghana as well. Graham then leaves Ghana after a coup d'etat, which removes the leadership that she is friends with. So she goes and moves to Cairo, where her son, her first son, lives, and where she learns Arabic and again, supported Afrocentric issues and causes and really puts her hands in the muck and gets involved politically again. This is a woman that is not afraid to speak her truth, right? She also lived in Beijing, where she continued to champion women's voices and the Communist Party. For time, we won't go too much into detail into her work in Cairo and her continued work in Ghana and China. She also became a Tanzanian citizen. But I will say that she produced a movie in China about Chinese women and labor, which is so interesting. She dies at 80, at the age of 80 from breast cancer in China, and she remains an honored and respected figure in Chinese history. That is fascinating, Shannon. I had no idea. What an interesting late life 
Yeah. That I just knew nothing about. Yeah. There's, I think there's mixed information about this, but where she's buried in her resting place is both in China and in Ghana. There's both a monument to her and her husband in Ghana and a monument to Graham in China. She had friends in leadership of all the places that she lived. So she didn't just, you know, move to a place and silently do her work. She really got to know the leadership and try to influence or help or support in any way that she could, especially when she believed in it. Here is a recording from our filmed scene from Graham's Dust to Earth, performed by D'Antonio DeMarco and Kenneth Heaton, and directed by Raphael Massey. Come in, Brick. You're probably not feeling any too strong. You may sit down. I uh, understand you risked your life yesterday trying to save another miner. Well, naturally, you didn't know what you were doing when you came out of those gas fumes. Otherwise, of course, I wouldn't tolerate such conduct. Not for a moment. Mr. McKnight tells me that you are an extremely fast driller. Yes, sir. How long you been here? Most three years. That's commendable. Do you uh, like it here? Yes, sir. Do you have a family? No, sir. Nobody at all? Not to speak of. Where are you from? Alabama. You've worked in the mines there? Yes, sir. Well, then, you know what mine work is. Well, now, Brick, I'm from Alabama, too. And I don't like boys who make trouble. Well, you know what happens to them down there. You wouldn't like to go back, would you? No, sir. See, we might keep you boys out of here, but we don't. All I'm asking is that you don't forget yourself just because you're in Illinois instead of back home in Alabama. Is that clear? Yes, sir. That's all. (laughs) By the way, what part of Alabama are you from? Milford County. Well, that's my, uh, near what town? Kingstown. Well, you must know the Clayton place. Yes, sir. I knows it. Well, you left three years ago. I haven't been back in nearly 30 years myself. Lord, you probably know some of our people. What's your last name again? I'm Cassie's boy. Cassie. Let's see now. uh, now If I recall, there were several Cassies lived on the other side of the track. Maybe. This Cassie didn't live on the other side of the track. Not then. What do you mean? What do you think some means? You can find a filmed recording from Graham's Dust to Earth on our website, performed by D'Antonio DeMarco and Kenneth Heaton and directed by Raphael Massey. An additional thank you goes to our director of photography, Jenny DeRosier, and sound designer, Stephanie Coriatis, and production stage manager, Jessica Fournier. A special thanks to Greg Phelps for editing this podcast. 
As we say farewell, I want to shout out the incredible work of Walter Gordon around this play. He is a scholar at Stanford focusing on the intersection of race and energy in literature, and his research played a very large part in my information for this podcast today and my thinking around this play. He is also working on an interactive digital version of Dust to Earth, which you should be able to find and interact with online very soon. Looking forward to that. Thank you all for joining us for our Dust to Earth by Shirley Graham Du Bois' episode of This is a Classic, the Expand the Canon podcast. Learn more at expandthecanon.com. If you believe in the importance of expanding the canon, please give us a five-star review and subscribe to this podcast. And then hit the share button and forward it along to a friend, colleague, or professor. For information on what's up next, you can follow us on Instagram. At Hedgepig Ensemble Theater. Facebook. Slash Hedgepig Ensemble Theater. Or join our mailing list at hedgepigensemble.org. You can also support this effort by donation at the link in the comments below. Please do. Again, I'm Mary. And I'm Shannon. Bye-bye. See ya.